like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live or on our podcast online right now. Thanks for joining us. Come on back, everybody. Anybody make coffee this morning? No. Yes? Cheers. Columbia, right here. Cheers to Columbia. Dark and rich, also a little fruity. It's a good combination of the two. Ethiopia, Kenya has the fruity floral. South American, Central American has the darky chocolatey. Colombia tends to like kind of weave those two together. It's fun. All right. It's my great joy to welcome you. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. We have been working through our sermon series. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I love you too. We've been working through our sermon series, Love Your Neighbor, for the month of October. We've hit the greatest commandments. We've hit circumcision and inclusivity. We've hit the dangers of favoritism. It's been a compelling series. It's been a challenging series. I encourage you to go back and listen to anything that you missed on our Facebook Live or on our podcast if you weren't able to catch them. Today, I want to tie a bow on this series, and to do so, I want to take a deeper look at one of our cherished practices, communion, also called the Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist. The title of my sermon today is The Eucharist and You. And here's what I hope to accomplish. I want to explore with you this idea of Eucharist, God's intention for it, what it means for followers of Jesus, and how desperately our city needs the Eucharist and you. Tom's Shoes. Every year they, uh, they have this day where they encourage people to participate with them in what they call a day without shoes. They invite people to join them to go an entire day going without shoes, raising awareness for the millions of people who go every day without shoes because they either cannot afford one or don't have access to a pair of shoes. Nine years ago, I remember participating and it impacted me. Eight years ago, I remember participating and God started doing something on my heart because of it. So I started praying into it and after months of prayer and talking with um, my spiritual, my pastors, my spiritual fathers, Here's what I believe God asked me to do. Go shoeless for six months. Raise awareness for the millions of souls without souls. And collect shoes. Collect shoes to be sent to people that need them. So I did. July 1st, 2010, I started a six-month journey of raising awareness and, and asking people for their shoes. I went everywhere my normal life took me. Grocery stores, coffee shops, church, golfing. I went to a Maroon 5 concert. I went to the Getty. I went to an Angels baseball game. I went to Disneyland. Six months doing life, no shoes. You know, I never enjoyed grass so much as during those six months. I'm not talking LA grass. I'm talking just like a lawn, like a nice green lawn. So thankful for grass during those six months. I I walked on very hot surfaces. I walked on very cold surfaces. I stepped in a lot of things. And as people asked to me about my bare feet, I told them, hundreds of millions of people today all over the world don't have access to a pair of shoes or they can't afford one. And I want to do something about it. So give me your shoes. Off your feet, I'll take them right now or I'll go to your house and I'll take them from your closet. And I have a buddy who's going to go to Panama and who's going to go to Mexico and bring them to people who need them. Because while I can't solve the problem of shoelessness, I can do something. 
And over that six-month period, I collected 850 pairs of shoes from friends and strangers, and they went out. And it was a, a life-changing experience. I was glad. I was honored to be, to be making a difference in real people's lives. But I want to share something with you. I was caught off guard by something during that six months. Something particularly surprised me. You know what it was? I was surprised by how much it inconvenienced my life. Now, I know you might think, like, duh, like that's what it is, right? It's like a six-month inconvenience. Like, that's the point, right? It's like, it sounds a little naive to, to, to say that. And I, to be honest, there was a whole bunch of naive wrapped up in that experience for me. I figured it would be challenging. I figured it would be hot and cold. I figured I would step in gross things. I figured I would step on sharp things. And all of that happened. But I also got funny looks. I wasn't allowed in some places. I was asked to leave other places. I was disrespected in some places. Hippie millennial. Just <laughs> I wanted to raise awareness. I wanted to collect shoes but I think I wanted to do it all without my life being inconvenienced. If I'm honest, I figured my feet would be inconvenienced. I didn't want my life to be inconvenienced. If, if I'm honest, I was hoping my feet would start conversations, that it would compel others to act, to change, to see the world different. I didn't realize how much it would push me. I didn't realize how much it would compel me and change me and ask me to see the world different. I wanted to make a difference, but what I didn't understand yet is making a difference costs something. And looking back, I think I, wanted, I think I wanted it to cost a bunch of other people more than me. Now, I'm grateful for the experience. It stretched me. It grew me. It challenged me. It did good. I believe it made the world a better place. And, and here's one of the bigger lessons that it taught me. For every blessing, there is a cost. Every blessing has a cost. Another way to say it, whenever someone benefits, someone pays for it. Now, Americans tend to be narcissistic in our approach to life. We like to take credit for things, and we like to pass blame for things. Take credit where we can, pass blame where we can. If our lives have benefited, it's because we worked for it. We busted our butts for it. We earned it. And I don't want to knock hard, hard work here, but let's shoot straight. How much hard work, how much effort did it take you? Did it cost you to turn the lights on this morning? Sure, you paid your electric bill. But electricity is not your doing, right? Someone, more accurately, a lot of someones, sacrificed a whole lot so that one day someone like you could wake up in the morning and flip a switch and turn on your house lights. You were blessed by someone else's hard work and sacrifice. Or think about innovation in any industry, technology, medicine, food, or even just seeing a movie or listening to a vinyl record. Someone or a lot of someones worked their butts off so you could enjoy the beauty, the, beauty, the benefit, the advance of their hard work and their sacrifice. If you have been blessed, someone did the blessing. If you have received, someone else gave. If you have benefited, someone else paid. Every blessing has a cost. It's how the world works. And I find it fascinating that God is not bound by these rules, but he played by these rules. He ordered the world to work this way, and then he entered into his creation and played by these rules to demonstrate his love for his creation. He blessed and he blesses humanity, our wholeness, our gain, and it cost him much. 
at the heart of the Jesus story is that is, is Jesus is God's good gift to humanity for the healing of the world. And I want to show you how he chose to demonstrate that. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, page 1053 on my Bible, probably not on your Bible. We've got Bibles in the back on the connection table, and I'll have the text up on the screen here as well. Starting in verse 14, Luke 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The table. When we talk about the table, we talk about Jesus' sacrifice for the redemption of his creation, that he would be betrayed, that he would be executed, and that this act would be the defining moment in the history of the world. The cross is the crux of history, of human history. It would unite us to God. It would unite us to each other. And what would appear like the death of God would actually begin the death of death. I love that this is what happens at the table. Which, which means that the table is not just a table. The table is an altar. The table is an altar. A little context. In Jesus' day, the dominant institution was the kinship system, the, the family, the home. And this is why early churches gathered in homes, home churches, rather than church buildings. It's why we see Jesus frequently going into people's houses and eating with them at the table. And what happened around the table in those houses, it shaped their culture, it formed and informed their relationships. In early Jewish tradition, they had this phrase, every table is an altar meaning sharing a meal together is a holy moment. I regularly encounter individuals who think to, to engage in the God stuff, the holy stuff, the spiritual stuff. You have to go to a church. You need to go somewhere where a religious authority, where a spiritual authority helps you think about God. But in early Jewish tradition, every table is an altar. Every table was an ordinary, everyday reminder to pause, to reflect on the fact that life is a gift, and that the, the very elements that sustain you are right in front of you on the table. And relationally, the table reminds us and expresses the, the inherent value of every soul. The, the person in front of me is to be honored. So yes, it's a table. It's a hunk of wood or plastic or metal to eat a meal, but, but really it's a holy moment. It's a holy moment when you're, when you're directly connected with God's provision and you're connected with another soul, which means it's more than a table, it's an altar. It's a sacred place. It's a holy place where we encounter the divine. When you read the Gospels, you frequently see Jesus at the table. 
at the table, sharing a meal with people. It was one of his ways of enlarging the family of God. He's, he's always tried to, to broaden that circle. In fact, eating with people he was not supposed to eat with might have been his most consistent social critique. Eating with the oppressed, those excluded from the system, the profane ones, the ones who were told they're not good enough or they're not clean enough or they're not spiritual enough. He ate with them as a form of social justice, constantly breaking the rules, making the table bigger. And then it all culminates in this Last Supper that we see with the 12 disciples. And in this meal, at this table, he instructs, eat this and drink this. Not just think about this, not try to prove this, Definitely not argue about this. He said, eat this and drink this, all of you. This meal is why we, re- why we keep repeating the meal. This, this meal that we just wrote about, it's why we keep repeating the meal, the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. And today I want to focus on this word Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we find material. We find in the, in the form of bread and wine, in the form of bread and grape juice, these, these, these material elements that show themselves to be hiding places for God. Here, we're reminded that God is always perfectly hidden and he's perfectly revealed in this very concrete and material world. In my experience, there are many different ways to, to understand spirituality, but for a lot of people, the way they were taught, the, 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 the form, the version that was handed to them was essentially a worldview that says some divine being somewhere is going to be upset with you if you don't do certain things and you don't stop doing other certain things, which means their base orientation, the, the foundation of their faith, their framework for the world, for God, for religion and spirituality is what are the rules? What's on the list? Just tell me what I have to do to be in with this God. And I found this to be particularly true even in in Christian tradition. Maybe this was your experience. Jesus, he became man, he died, he resurrected from the dead, so you don't have to do anything to be saved. But then, here are all the things that you got to do to be saved. So for many, if if we look in the mirror, if we're honest, peeling back all the layers of our religion, our spirituality, what you find is do more. Because the big deity in the sky, he's going to be less pissed at you if you play by his rules. Do your best to earn your salvation, to to earn blessing, and make sure you avoid sin, and maybe even avoid sinful people, because your eternal destiny is dependent on that. At the base, I regularly find, here are the rules you got to play by. Normally things like go to church often, read your Bible every day, pray more, give more, make sure you convert someone. And then don't do everything on this list, and then God will be happy with you. Being a pastor for 10 years now, I've picked up on these kinds of themes in conversation when I talk with people. It's, it's specific language. It's recurring language. Just tell me what I got to do so the great being in the sky won't be angry with me. But the table, the Eucharist, declares there's more to life than that. That when we, when we gather over the table to share food, to share pain, to share joy, what we're doing is connecting with the depths of our lives. And the reason this is important is because for many people, I would say even especially in L.A., life is moving so fast, they're just skimming across the surface. They're moving so fast. It's not just busyness, it's a spirit of hurry. 
They're moving so quickly that they miss the divine presence in all of it. School, work, meals, relationships, hobbies, traffic, pets, pour-overs, Hulu. It's a meal, but it's just a meal. It's a conversation, but it's just a conversation. Everything seems to be disconnected from its roots, cut off from its roots, cut off from eternity. But the reality is every breath, every conversation, every task, it's laced with the divine. It's, it's braided with divine in it. The art is to see eternity in all of it. To see the divine presence that's, that's threading your life together, the sacred in everything, the holy in everything, the depths in everything, the Jesus in everything. And this is why the table is so profound in Jewish tradition. And this is why the Eucharist table is so profound in, in the Christian tradition. It's an altar where we encounter God. He says, come as you are, encounter my love for you. I want intimate friendship with you, despite all your faults. In fact, if you come to me with all your faults, I'll redeem these things into wounds that heal other people. People ask, where is God? In the Eucharist, we see God is everywhere. The, the spiritual masters are adamant about this. We are constantly in the presence of God. We cannot not be in the presence of God. And the Eucharist grounds us in this truth. In this truth, The presence of God in one place, in the material, in one focused moment. He's present here with us in these elements. Which means if God is here in these elements, he's present in all other elements. You take a table and you put bread and wine on it. And in this ritual, the bread and wine are holy and sacred. Why? Because all bread and wine is holy and sacred. Why? Because all of life is holy and sacred. So learn to recognize the presence of God when you leave this room. When you're in conversation with people from a different religion or a different race or a different sexual orientation. At the heart of the Christian story is the Eucharist table where we're giving eyes to see the God who's present in all of it. It's not to escape our everyday lives to find a God who's somewhere else in some temple or some, some church or some elementary school cafeteria. It's you being reminded of the God who's present in all of your life, the Christ in all of that common. And this isn't just a perspective. This is at the heart of the Jesus tradition. It's our growing understanding that the whole world is a temple. The whole thing is God's house. It's all electric. It's all holy. It's all sacred. And the more you see that, the more you're transformed by it. So it's a meal, but it's more than a meal. It's a table, but it's more than a table. It's an altar, the Eucharist. It's an altar. This word Eucharist is literally tra translated as the good grace or good gift. You mean the good Charis is grace or gift. It's God's good gift that blesses all who receive. But again, every blessing has a cost. Whenever someone benefits, someone pays for it. You see, again, at the heart of this Jesus story is the message that Jesus is God's good gift to humanity for the healing of the world. Jesus is the Eucharist. Jesus is the good gift. And the, the gift works in a very specific way. Here's the cost. His body broken, his blood poured out. 
This is how the good gift works. His body broken, his blood poured out. We receive at the cost of his body broken and his blood poured out. We receive life. We receive grace. We receive forgiveness of sins. Wholeness, renewal, peace, community, creativity, inspiration, favor, mercy. We receive and receive and receive. And the cost was a cross. Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out. This is what the Eucharist calls us to remember. But today, I want to take it a little step further. I want to go back to what Jesus told his followers. This is what he said. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Most people have been in the church for a long time familiar with that phrase right there. I want to submit a, 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 a fresh approach to this this morning. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Could Jesus have meant more than just eat and drink in remembrance of me? See, the church normally holds it this way. Anytime you take communion, remember Jesus' sacrifice. Think about what he did for you on the cross. Be grateful for it. And it's helpful and it's good. But could Jesus have meant more than that? And by that, I mean, I think Jesus meant more than that. This is my body broken. This is my blood poured out. Do this. Allow your bodies to be broken. Allow your blood to be poured out in remembrance of me. I'd like to submit this morning that that in response to Christ's good gift to us, he asks that we become our own Eucharist to others. That out of gratitude for his good gift, we're invited to join him and with him become a Eucharist, become a good gift for the healing of the world. Your body broken, your blood poured out. Do this in remembrance of me. Because there's something commonly left out of the gospel message, the good news. Yes, Jesus is the good gift. Yes, Jesus accomplished something powerful and mysterious and and transformative and victorious on the cross for us. But we must not forget that we are here to join Jesus in the healing of the world. That we're here to serve and bless and elevate those around us. To give life so that others may have life. We're joining Jesus in that work. Paul says that this ministry has been entrusted to you, church. And to remind you, the Eucharistic gift always comes at a cost. Body broken, blood poured out. You're on the planet to join Christ in the renewal of and redemption of his creation. That's why you're still here. And if the world is going to benefit, if the world is going to be blessed, it will come at a cost. And Jesus invites us to bear that, that cost with him. You know, about 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote, you are what you eat. About 1,600 years ago, he wrote that about the Eucharist. Isn't that awesome? You are what you eat. In the Eucharist, we move beyond rational thought, beyond words, this, this linear approach into, into this realm where we encounter deep mystery, where we encounter the divine, and we chew on it. And we drink it. And over time, we become what we eat. We realize we are the very body of Christ. Not just this metaphor, we're the body of Christ. To be broken for the healing of the world. I don't think at the Last Supper, Jesus was merely instructing his followers, engage in a weekly 
ritual of remembering what I'm going to do for you. I think that's good, but I think it went far beyond that. I think Jesus was offering an action to be imitated, a, a sacred mime for his community. This is what he did. He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it open and he gave it to those around him. Do this in remembrance of me. Take your life in your hands. Give thanks for it. Choose to break it wide open and then give it to those around you so that they may be blessed, so that they may be healed. Body broken, blood poured out. What a wild invitation. I mean, who lives this way? Really? Inconvenience your life for the good of those around you? Who purposefully wakes up in the morning taking their life into their hands, thanking God for it, and then chooses to be broken, chooses to be inconvenienced and pained so they can cause wholeness and healing to those around them? It's obviously not the norm. But isn't there something deeply compelling about that? The Christianity I often hear about is not compelling at all. That kind of message, that's compelling to me. It's so much more compelling than, than a message of just being committed to convenience and profit. The way of greed, the way of hyper-capitalism, Christian ego and narcissism and, and radical selfishness. In our, war, in our world, in our culture, would Eucharist not stand out? A person or a community that's committed to imitating Jesus, body broken, blood poured out for the sake of the world, severely inconvenienced, putting the needs of others in front of our own, would this not stand out like light on a hill in the dead of night? And this is why we put on events like Trunk or Treat. This is why we're going to do Trunk or Treat. Is this convenient for us? No. Is it easy to put together? No. Will we profit from it? No. Is it free to put on? Heck no. But we don't exist for our small community here. We don't exist for our comfort and our convenience. We exist to join Jesus as he heals our city. So if we can cause some goodness, if we can cause some wholeness, a little bit of joy, a little bit of healing by putting on a free community event, oh my gosh, it's so worth it. Please hear this. We are not using this event to try to convince people to come to our church. This is not bait to be part of our community. It doesn't matter if they show up here next Sunday. I don't care. They are people. They're people. Their souls created in the image of God, and they deserve to be treated that way. And today, we're going to give a good gift with no ulterior motives to whoever wants to attend. No matter their decisions they made yesterday, no matter their political or religious affiliation, they all bear the mark of their divine maker, and we're going to honor that in them. I love the word namaste. Literally translated, it means the divinity in me salutes the divinity in you. The image of God in me acknowledges the image of God in you. Something that's infinite and mysterious that abides deep in me. From this light, from this depth, I'm going to honor that in you. Namaste. <laughs> I love that. What if this was the way 
that we ordered our world, this, the foundational assumption that we carry about every person we encountered, despite the reputations, despite the mistakes, we're divine. I tell you, you make it a lot harder to abuse another. Make it a lot harder to belittle another or suppress them or bully them or discriminate against them. And it would probably make the cost of elevating another, body broken, blood poured out, it'd probably make that cost a whole lot more worth it too. The truth is, despite our reputations, despite our mistakes, we are divine. And as a follower of Jesus, you've been invited to be a living Eucharist, a good gift to the world. I want to tell you this. Our city needs your story. Our city needs your passions and your gifts and your talents and your unique approach to life. You are a Eucharist for the rest of us. We need you to give yourself. Your city, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, they need you to give yourself, to allow your body to be broken, to allow your blood to be poured out for them. Today we're going to do something a little different. You may have noticed we didn't take communion after the second song this morning. That's because I want to take it together. Now, I want to lead you today in receiving the Eucharist and becoming the Eucharist. I'm going to invite Jackie to come up. We have two stations here at the front. And I'd like to invite you now to come take some bread, to dip it in the juice, and then go back to your seat. Don't eat it yet. And then I'll lead us in sharing this meal together. So you can come, up, you can come on up and get some, get some Eucharist right now. Would you stand with me? The Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. What happens in our ritual is we gather at a table to be, to be reminded of, of Christ's good gift to us. His body broken, his blood poured out to be reminded of our need for grace. At this table, at this altar, you bring whatever you need to bring to it. Whatever brokenness and failure, or regret or pain or sin, even our joy and our gratitude, we bring our whole selves, we bring all of it, and we, we receive from Jesus' good gift. Body broken, blood poured out, and then we do it in remembrance of him. 
our bodies broken, our blood poured out for the healing of the world. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. seated. I'm going to close out here. At the core of our faith, the core of the Jesus tradition is a table. A table where we gather around bread and wine, where everyone is welcome to remind ourselves of God's good, of God's good gift, to reflect on his body broken and blood poured out for our salvation and healing and hope and faith and redemption and our wholeness. We gather around this table to be reminded that we are a Eucharist, to be broken and poured out for the healing of the world, for the good of our city, for the love of our neighbor. And maybe you've been told you have nothing to offer the world. Maybe you've been told you're a screw up and you'll never amount to anything. Or maybe you tell yourself that that you're boring and that you'll never accomplish anything great. And today I want to boldly declare in faith and enjoy that you are living, breathing Eucharists. You're here for your body to be broken and for your blood to be poured out for the healing of those around you. So I challenge you to reimagine, to reframe what you do every single day to be Eucharistic. The way you design graphics or bus tables or write contracts, or make art, or make coffee, or how you parent your children, or how you manage your employees, or how you forgive those who have wronged you. I challenge you to give yourself in love to the people who make up your world, to allow yourself to be broken, to be poured out in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for you joining him and blessing our city. This is what we get invited into. To offer hope, to offer healing, to offer wholeness in the way of Jesus. So we come to you, Jesus, and we are grateful for your sacrifice. Not that you just died on the cross for us, but you exemplified for us, you demonstrated for us what it looks like to give ourselves for the healing of others. And we want to be like you. We want to bear your name with grace and with integrity. So give us strength, oh God. I pray even in this moment, as we're sitting in this room, that you would speak to hearts and to minds right now in what it looks like to be a Eucharist in their context. 
and their family and their friendships and their job and their hobbies, what it looks like to sacrifice for the good of those around them. And I pray that as they do so, Lord, it wouldn't be their name that would be remembered, but yours. That you would receive glory, that you would receive honor, that you would receive the fame for the way we live our lives here, God. So bring heaven down. May it be in our lives, may it be in our church, may it be in L.A. as it is in heaven. We ask all this in faith, Jesus.